This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, we're really going to be focusing in primarily on uh, verse 10 tonight, but I'm going to go back and read uh, verse 6. Um, pick up there and read 6 through 11. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach um, interesting, uh, just side note here, the, the two bookends there, so to speak. Verse 6, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. And then verse 11, these things command and teach. So Paul uh, wants these things known. The Holy Spirit wants these things known. Now, I said we're going to uh, focus in on verse 10, uh, depending on how much time this takes here. We may only get the first half of verse 10. We'll see. But um, primarily focusing, focusing in on verse 10. But we need to keep in mind uh, this, this uh, idea of godliness. And that's one reason I wanted to back up and, and start where I did. Uh, just to kind of help us with the context without, uh, without actually going back to chapter 1, verse 1, and reading the whole thing again, which, which would actually be a good idea. But... but uh, so you see here what he's talking about. Instruct the brethren in these things. If you do that, you're a good or a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. Um, reject, verse 7, profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself toward godliness. Now, that's going to be uh, still the, the thought. That's going to be key in verse 10. Exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Okay, a um, couple questions for starters here. What is godliness? Anybody want to answer that? Um, and I'm, I mean, just I'm not looking for necessarily something specific. Put it in your own words. But what, what is what is Paul talking about here when he says exercise yourself toward godliness? Or godliness is profitable, profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. What's he talking about? What is godliness? What is it? Yeah, amen. 
Yeah, that's good. In fact, I gave you, uh, last week I gave you one word, uh, or really kind of a, what do they call it, compound word, when you put a couple of words together, uh, to, to describe it. But even it doesn't go far enough, but it still helps me. And that's, that's uh, God-likeness. God-likeness. Um, and it may go far enough in the sense of including everything, because obviously if we were like God, <laughs> if we were really like God, we'd be, we'd be, uh, we'd be godly, wouldn't we? Um, but, uh, but you, but you just kind of have to explain it. What do you mean by God-likeness? I mean, because we're not, for example, uh, ever going to be omnipresent or omniscient. Some, some of God's attributes are not communicable. He has Communicable and non-communicable attributes. And so a non-communicable attribute would be like His omnipresence. Nobody else, no other thing, creature, whatever, is omnipresent. God and God alone. Remember that next time you are in a service somewhere and the preacher says, Satan is sitting on the front row or something like that. He's probably not. It could be, theoretically, but he's probably not. Because <laughs> he's only in one place at a time, all right. But a lot of times we we give demons, Satan, uh, uh, we ascribe not enough power to them. Oftentimes, but then oftentimes we ascribe too much power to them. Only God is omnipresent. But a communicable attribute would be something like love or great. That's something God actually uh, communicates to us so that we can do it as well. Did you have a? Well, yeah. Amen. And all legalistic activity, we know that's not because he says, stay away from all that. Amen. Amen. I mean, I mean whatever, I mean, it, it, that doesn't make you godly. I mean, it won't make you healthier, but it won't, it won't make you godly, will it? Amen. Amen. That's good. And that's Romans 14 again we mentioned before. You know, Paul said the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness and peace and joy. In the Holy Spirit, which which I think is another way of of talking about godliness, righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. There's really a whole list of things you could throw in here. I don't know that. Uh, uh, like I say, for me, I like to use the term God likeness, but but there's a lot that goes into that. So so when you get down to describing it, you know you. Because you not only have to talk about uh, communicable attributes, you know, God is gracious, therefore we should be gracious and so forth, but you also have to talk about uh, how that applies, application. So, there, I mean, there's, there's tons of, of things you could work in there under that umbrella of God likeness. So we're just, we're probably just, just barely going to scratch the surface here, but going to try to mention, uh, a few things that I hope hope will be helpful, and I've I've, I've you know I've been thinking on this and thinking on this, and and still, it's, well, it's like I said, you just feel like just barely, barely scratching the surface here. There is so much that could be said. Let me read you uh, kind of a uh, kind of a just a bit of a textbook def- definition or description, because what this author is doing is is um, describing the sense of the Greek word itself and how it's used, uh, how, how it was used in the, in the Koine Greek and in Classical Greek. He says, um, first of all, that it's, it's used only by Peter 
Uh, one example of that would be Acts 3.12 and then in the pastoral epistles. And this is uh, one example of that, which we're, we're looking at here. Okay, it is from the word you. The, the word is Eusebian, and it's from the word you, which means well. It's a prefix meaning well. Um, eulogy, for example, is when you speak well of somebody. Um, from the word you and Sabomai to worship. So, well worship. Keep that in mind. Well worship. So that the radical idea is worship rightly directed. Worship rightly directed. That's, you know, the literal meaning of the word is well worship. So he's saying the radical idea or the root idea of the word is worship rightly directed. Now that's uh, uh, Marvin Vincent. He was 20th century uh, Greek scholar. Um, in fact, Wycliffe, some of you may remember when we watched the movie on John Wycliffe and he translated the, uh, <clears throat> he translated the scripture into uh, English for the first time from, from a, uh, that was the first time it was translated directly from a Greek text into the English. So, um, for example, uh, let me give you two verses. Um, um, Bob, if you would look up Matthew 6, 2. And uh, Ronnie, if you would look up Matthew 19, 19. And these are just uh, other uses of this word. So, Wycliffe rendering of Matthew 6, 2, that they be worshipped of men and worship thy father and thy mother in Matthew 19, 19. Go ahead, Bob, and give me Matthew 6, 2. That they may have glory of men. That's the term there. And, and what, what uh, Marvin Vincent is saying here is that when Wycliffe translated the uh, Scripture into English, he, he put the word worshipped there. That they, that's how he translated this word. That they may be worshipped of men. Um, go ahead, Ronnie. Matthew 19.19. 19. Okay, that first word, honor, is the word is the same word. It's translated by Wycliffe. It was translated worship. Worship thy father and thy mother. Now, one reason he's pointing that out is to show that it it's not always talking about worship toward God. It is the sense you uh, was using the sense of honoring. Um, so that that's why uh, it was used that way in the Greek, and that's why uh, Wycliffe uses the term worship. But anyway, worship thy father and thy mother in, in Matthew nineteen nineteen, meaning that you're to give them uh, glory, I'm, I'm sorry, to give them the uh, honor that they're due. In the, in the strictest sense of this word, because it comes from the, uh, the etymology of it is, is the term worth-ship. So in other words, you're recognizing the worth of something. In that case, Matthew nineteen nineteen. You're, you're recognizing the worth of your parents and you're, you're honoring them. Or in the other case, the Pharisees were seeking 
that kind of praise, um, that somebody would <laughs> recognize some worth in them. When they gave alms, they, uh, they uh, uh, marched up and down the street blowing trumpets looking for worship, praise. So that's, that's just a couple of ways it's used in Scripture. And he goes on to say here, uh, in classical Greek, now we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, not Scripture, but uh, outside of Scripture, in classical Greek writings. In classical Greek, the word is not confined to religion, but means also piety in the fulfillment of human relations. So I'm just telling you all that just to kind of get the feel for the word. It's just the idea of piety or um, honor, worship, or as Vincent says here, worship rightly directed. Worship rightly directed. And then he says a little further down, Even in the classical Greek, however, it is, stand, it is a standing word for piety in the religious sense. So it's used in that sense also. Showing itself in right reverence and is opposed to ungodliness or profaneness. Um, manifest in conduct and conversation in sacrifice and prayer. So, so another good term would be the term piety. Uh, a lot of times when we use that term today, we automatically think of self-righteousness, but that's not not the way the term has always been used. It can be used in a good sense. Piety, godliness, piety. Um, let me give you a couple other scriptural scriptural uses here. Uh, right here in First Timothy, because this is important, I think, because Paul's using this term repeatedly. And again, I think uh, it, it helps us grasp what he's talking about if we look at how he's using it uh, in his own writing. So, for example, you look over in First Timothy 2.2. 2, we ran into it uh, real quickly when we got into the book. First uh, Timothy 2.2. 2. Uh, in First Timothy 2.1, he's exhorting... Uh, the men to pray. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now, all, surrounded by all those other terms, uh, that that kind of helps get the fullness of what what he means by godliness. He's saying pray for peace so that, verse 2, we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Um, down in, and then we, here in our text, it was used in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. And if you look over in chapter 6, Verse 3 gives instructions for, uh, uh, this is part of his giving instruction for submission, specifically here, slaves, uh, servants are to be submitted to their masters. And then he says in verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, uh, 
even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, and goes on. But here, he's, he's tying it in, doctrine according to godliness. He's, tie, he's tying it directly into doing the will of God. Because he's, he's, he's talking about somebody who doesn't teach these things as being opposed to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. So, uh, living in obedience to Christ, doing the will of Christ, doing the will of God would be godliness. Doctrine, teaching, teaching that is uh, um, consistent with God's will is teaching that is according to godliness. And he goes on, uh, a couple more verses here. He is proud, verse 4, He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. So here are people engaging in activity that they perceive or you know they see the, the godly activity and they're and they're trying to join in with it and engage uh, engage uh, engage in it uh, because they think it's profitable in some uh, some selfish way. But he goes on to say in verse six, godliness with contentment is great gain. So they're 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 involved in in the church or in religion, you know, Christianity. They're involved for the wrong reasons. They're they're looking for a way to to uh, have temporal gain. In other words, they're using Christ and Christianity as a means to get to an end, using Jesus as a means to get to something else instead of seeing that He is the end. <laughs> he is the means and the end. But no, Paul says that there's really no profit in that, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So, doctrine that accords with godliness is doctrine that is consistent with the will of Christ, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3. And Paul says, this, doing the will of God, along with contentment, is great gain. It is great gain. It's of great value. Verse 11, I'm still in chapter 6 here. Instruction to Timothy. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness. And and there's a, a... in talking about the greed and all, he's he's setting it up, setting godliness over against evil, like uh, Brother Carl was mentioning earlier. Uh, he gives he gives things that are ungodly, gives um, specifics, uh, examples, and then he says, "But no, you pursue godliness." So you, Timothy, you old man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. That sounds awfully close to Galatians 5, doesn't it? And the fruit of the Spirit. 
some of the same fruit mentioned here, and it's described as godliness. Again, you take all these other terms with this term godliness, and it helps define it for us. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Because all these things are not talking about, all these words are not talking about something totally separate. They're all talking about living consistently with the will of God. Pursue faith. Pursue love. Pursue patience or uh, endurance. Pursue gentleness. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. And he goes on to say in verse 12, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. That's a great exhortation. Isn't it? Telling, telling Timothy, O man of God, flee these things, ungodly things, and pursue righteousness. I heard John MacArthur say one time, the Christian life is a life of running. And you never stop. You're always fleeing ungodliness and pursuing righteousness. And that's one of the things I want to hone in on tonight. It's, it's active. It's not passive. We'll come back to that in a moment. All right. Um, so those are some of the uses of the word that uh, I think help us define it. Since Paul doesn't say, "Okay, look, <clears throat> pursue godliness," and here's you know here's how I define godliness. He he just lays it out, um, sort of indirectly. I mean, just just by uh, by giving us some description, but not not saying here's the. Here's the dictionary definition of the term I'm using. Okay, number one, um, it, it must be a goal. Godliness, that is, must be a goal. Let's go back to chapter 4 here. And again, chapter, uh, verse 7, rather, exercise yourself toward godliness. Uh, the word uh, uh, exercise there. Some some uh, translations say discipline. That's the word from which we get our word gymnasium or gymnastics. Exercise yourself unto godliness. Exercise yourself toward godliness. Um, now think about that for just a moment. Uh, exercise yourself toward godliness or unto godliness. In other words, godliness is the goal. That's that's where you're trying to get, and the and the exercise is the means. If if um, you were an athlete, uh, if I were an athlete, athletes set goals, and then. They get there, I mean, if they're a true athlete, if they're a good athlete, they, they achieve those goals through discipline. Discipline. So they've got the goal set, here's where I want to be, and then um, here's how I get there. I sit down on the couch and cross my legs and wait. I mean, I want to be the, 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 uh, the world champion um, Deadlifter, you know. So I'm just going to sit down and wait until I grow the muscles. <laughs> Not how it works. And Paul's using that metaphor to describe 
the Christian life and pursuit of godliness. Exercise yourself unto godliness. Interesting, isn't it? Gymnasium. Discipline is the idea. Exercise. For, look at verse 8 again, for bodily exercise profits a little. And again, as I said last week, that's not a slam on bodily exercise. He's not saying that it's worthless. He's just saying it's limited in its profit. It, it, it profits in some areas. And uh, the older I get, the more I find that out, you know, because I didn't do it when I knew I should have when I was younger. And, and you know, when you get older, you got to play catch-up. Bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Now, what he's, what he's doing is showing this... Again, he's not saying bodily exercise is worthless. He's just showing the superiority of godliness. Bodily exercise is, is beneficial, but it's very limited in its benefits. But godliness is profitable for all. Having, here's why, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Now, bodily exercise may have some promise concerning the life that now is. Uh, depending, you know, I mean, some people tell you, well, it can extend your lifespan or at least while you're here, it make you feel better, you know, breathe better, walk better, run better, climb better, jump better, all those things. It's got profit for the life that now is, but no profit for the life to come. But godliness has both. It's profitable for now, and it's profitable for eternity. That's quite a statement. Think of all the emphasis in our culture put on bodily exercise. And again, not a, not a slam on bodily exercise. It's, it's good. It's a good discipline. But it is still far inferior to godliness. Now, how much emphasis in the church is put on godliness? Notice I didn't even say the culture. The culture could care less about godliness. But what about in the church? What about among Christians? What if, what if we just weighed that in the balances for a moment? Among Christians, is there more emphasis on bodily exercise or godliness? Or you could put anything in that other side of it. Is there more emphasis on X or godliness? Is there more emphasis on Y or godliness? Is, whatever it is. Is there more emphasis on anything in this world that only has very limited temporary value, are, are we emphasizing godliness in our own lives and in church life, you know, corporately as a whole? Bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So first of all, it has to be a goal, and, and it is with Paul. Verse, verse 10, he says, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach. Now, <clears throat> let's read those verses together. Um, 
8, 9, and 10 here. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, for having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. And I think he's referring back to what he just said in verse 8, that godliness is profitable for all things. That's a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Of course, he's talking about among believers because he's instructing, he's encouraging. This, this teaching, this fact that godliness is profitable for this life and for the life to come is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptance. For, verse 10, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach. This, this is our goal, Paul is saying. Godliness. Godliness is our goal. It's, it's his, his personal goal. Philippians 3, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being made conformable to His death. It's His personal goal that I may know Him. That I may know Him. Didn't Paul know Christ? (laughs) He knew Him, but he he wanted to keep on knowing Him, knowing Him better and knowing Him better. And it was His goal for the church. That He might labor toward, exercise toward, strive toward godliness and that others would do the same. Uh, well, I don't even have time to go there and get the rest of this first. I was going to give you another passage. You can look at it if you want. It's along those same line. Second Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. There he's also talking <clears throat> about his goal. Um, back to verse 10 here before we have to quit. For to this end, in other words, the, the, the goal is godliness. We both labor, and by the way, that is plural. He's saying all of us. We, we both labor and suffer reproach. But here's the second thing. It, first of all, it's, it's got to be a goal. It's got to be a goal in our lives. And secondly, it's not passive. What, what Paul is talking about here is not passive. It's active. How, how, let's, let's put it in the form of a question. How does one become godly? How do you live out godliness? He's calling for action. This, this is what he's instructing Timothy. This is what he's instructing the church at Ephesus. <coughs> to do something. Exercise. Remember verse 7? Exercise yourself toward godliness. It's a command. It's an imperative. Exercise yourself toward Godliness. And then Paul says, I do. We do. This is our goal. It's, it's to this end, for this goal, that we both labor and suffer reproach. Now, there, there's an alternative uh, rendering in verse 10. Um, and you'll see it reflected in different versions. Um, one is what I just read to you. It, for, to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach. That's King James. 
And the other reads this way, for to this end we both labor and strive. And you'll see that in some of the, uh, uh, well, uh, the ESV, I think uh, the NIV and others put the word strive there. That's because there's, there's a variant uh, in the uh, Greek text. Some of them say uh, suffer reproach. Some of them say strive. Uh, Agonizomai, it's, it's the word ag- where we get our word agonize. Agonize. Now that one does, to me, seem to <coughs> agree more with the context here. So that Paul would be saying here, for to this end, in other words, to achieve this goal, we both labor and strive. And the word labor there just, just means that. It's, I mean, it's the idea of, of uh, laboring. Um, <clears throat> Strong's has, a, as a definition, wearisome effort. To labor with wearisome effort. So it's just to engage in work, to labor. And then uh, the word... Agonizomai, which I mentioned is where we get our word agonize. It's the idea of, of uh, contending or fighting, to contend, to fight, to struggle, to endeavor with strenuous zeal. It's the same word that Jesus used when He said, strive to enter in the narrow gate. Agonize. Agonize to enter in the narrow gate. And Paul says, we agonize. We agonize. To be godly. We work. We labor. It's it's for this goal that we labor and strive. Or, um, if you take the other rendering, it's to this goal that we labor and suffer reproach. In other words, we are willing to suffer reproach for the sake of godliness. To be godly in this world. Now, one more thing, and before we um, quit here for tonight. First, as I said, it must be a goal. That is, godliness should be a goal, must be a goal in every Christian's life. Number two, and this is one reason it must be a goal, is because it is not passive; it's active. You don't you don't get there doing nothing. Paul is calling for action. Reminiscent of the Lord's words along the same lines, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And he says, For this goal we labor and agonize. And thirdly this, it's based upon trust in God. Trust in God. Again, verse 10, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, or for to this end we both labor and strive because we trust in the living God. Isn't that an amazing statement? <laughs> I mean, so often, well, the way we tend to think in our day and time and do things is say, you know what, I'm not going to do anything, I'm just going to trust God. And Paul says, I'm going to do something because I trust God. Because it has 
promise for this life and the life to come, and because I believe that. That's what Paul is saying. I'm, I'm going to work. In fact, Paul, and, and I don't think he was a haughty person, but you know, he said of himself that he labored more than all the apostles. That's quite a statement, because I don't think any of them were lazy. And Paul said, I work harder than, than all of them. But you know what was behind all of them and the work that they did was trust in God. In other words, they believed the Gospel and they believed the reward that Jesus promised. They believed that they were going to face Him one day again and they believed they were going to spend an eternity with Him and they believed that if they worked hard to get the Gospel out that people were going to be saved because the Lord said, you carry the Gospel into the ends of the world and lo, I'm with you always. They believed that. And it was because they trusted God that they were willing to strive to be godly. So Paul says, we labor and we strive because we trust the living God who is the Savior of all men. Boy, that, 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 <laughs> well, that's a part of the basis for his trust that we're not going to have time to get to tonight. But we'll, Lord willing, we'll come back to that next Wednesday night. Because we trust the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Exercise yourself. To godliness. Make, make it a goal. Make it the primary goal in your life. And go to work. Exercise it. Exercise it. Trusting God. Let that be your our motive. Trusting Him. One question for next week and, and uh, um We'll plan to pick up here um, and, and Lord willing, finish that thought out um, because, uh, again, part, part of the rest of it is in that phrase, He's the Savior of all men. But I also want to ask this question just for something. You've got, you got a week to think about this. In what sense is Jesus the Savior of all men? In what sense... Is Jesus, or you could say God, that's what the passage says here. In what sense is God the Savior of all men? Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And Lord, thank You for uh, godliness. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.